The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Evolution of Sickle Cell Disease, Current Advances and Future Possibilities. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash CMX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning, everyone. We are here to discuss the evolution of sickle cell disease, current advances, and future possibilities. I'd like to welcome our panelists today, which include myself, Bari Andamariam, uh, Dr. Matthew Heaney, Dr. Abdullah Kutlar, and Dr. Santosh Saraf. So again, welcome. My name is Dr. Bari Andamariam. I am professor of medicine and director of two programs at the University of Connecticut, the New England Sickle Cell Institute, as well as the Connecticut Bleeding Disorder Center. In partnership with SCDAA, which is the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America, we bring you today's event. And you can go to the SCDAA website at sickleselldisease.org to find additional resources. The SCDAA is the oldest advocacy organization for individuals with sickle cell disease in the United States. So this is our agenda today. It's divided into three parts. First is Master Class One, the evolution of sickle cell disease and progress over the last decade. Master Class Two with a practicum, clinical advancement in sickle cell disease, focusing on current therapeutic approaches to patient care. And finally, Master Class Three with practicum, focusing on what is on the horizon in sickle cell disease, looking at future therapeutic approaches to patient care. So I'd like to introduce my colleague, Dr. Abdullah Kutlar, who will focus on the evolution of sickle cell disease and progress over the last decade. Dr. Kutlar. Thank you, Bri. Uh, good morning. Uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, I am uh, an adult hematologist and the director of the Center for Blood Disorders, uh, the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, not too far from here. So I'll be talking mostly about things that you already know, sort of a refresher and a reminder type. Uh, then my colleagues will follow with uh, new therapies and where the field is. So here you see the number of newborns around the globe with sickle cell disease. And the darker the brown is, the more, and obviously, uh, the largest number of cases are in Sub-Saharan Africa and India, uh, followed by North and South America. And if you look at Europe, there has been an increase in recent years, decades, due to population movements and migrations, mostly. Now, this is the mechanism, basic mechanisms of sickling. At the center of all pathophysiology is the polymerization of deoxyhemoglobin S, or sickling. And that leads to rheologic impairment of red cells, which then in turn cause microvascular occlusion, shortened red cell lifespan with hemolytic anemia. For decades, this was thought to be the prime mechanism in sickle cell disease, but especially in the last three decades, it has become clear that there are additional, what you might call, downstream effects of sickling. 
Now, it's important to bear in mind that deoxyhemoglobin S polymerization is still the central event, but that leads to a number of mechanisms that are summarized here, starting with uh, vasoocclusion and ischemia reperfusion injury, uh, increased adhesion of white cells to endothelium, inflammation, hemolysis leading to nitric oxide scavenging and endothelial dysfunction, generation of a hypercoagulable state, membrane damage with potassium loss. All of these phenomena definitely do contribute to the disease pathophysiology. In terms of the clinical aspects, uh, the evolution of the clinical features from pediatric age group to adulthood in pediatrics, we mostly see uh, acute and episodic complications, infections, sepsis, the ductilitis. And as time goes by into adulthood, the picture becomes dominated by chronic organ damage and organ failure. Common to both adults and pediatric patients are intermittent acute events, such as vasoocclusive episodes, acute chest, and of course, iron overload continues to be a problem in both these populations. There are different genotypes that cause sickling, sickle trait, uh, by and large under normal circumstances, does not cause any pathology. But as you well know, recently there has been an increased attention, uh, especially problems with sickling under extreme environmental conditions, such as extreme heat, extreme uh, ex exercise, strenuous exercise, and exposure to high altitude. And in terms of the other genotypes, the most common genotypes, especially in this country, uh, homozygous hemoglobin S, or sickle cell anemia, in many centers that constitutes about 70% of all sickle cell patients, and that's followed by SC disease and S-beta plus and S-beta zero. For all practical purposes, also confirmed in the cooperative study, the phenotypes of SS and S-beta zero are very similar, and the same can be said for SC and S-beta plus thalassemia in terms of the frequency of different episodes and complications. Now, pain continues to be the most common cause of uh, encounters in sickle cell disease. It's important to understand that there are different types of pain that sickle cell patients suffer from. Acute pain, uh, vasoocclusive episodes or pain crisis, and foot syndrome in pediatrics. Acute chest and priapism are some of the acute painful syndromes, whereas we also know very well that there are a number of uh, pathologies that could lead to chronic pain in sickle cell disease, such as osteonecrosis of femoral or humeral heads, leg ulcers is well known. Chronic back pain due to disc disease can also be seen in sickle cell patients, and osteomyelitis, also a component of chronic pain. But more importantly, I think, with a recent recognition of a chronic pain entity in sickle cell. Uh, this could have either a neuropathic component or a centralization component. We'll talk a little more about that. 
Uh, Vaso-occlusive episode is an acute episodic pain, and it's usually somatic in nature. It's, there's typical anatomic distribution, usually symmetric. The most common presentation, if you ask patients, is lower back and bilateral lower extremity pain, but it could happen at uh, other areas of the body. There is well-known inter- and intra-patient variation in the frequency of these episodes. Uh, but the important fact remains that it is the number one cause of healthcare encounters, constituting over 90% of these. And in terms of the costs, with 2004 figures, this was almost half a billion dollars in hospitalization costs. This is uh, from Ora Platt's publication from the analysis of cooperative study data. And it shows the frequency of crisis in different genotypes uh, over years. As you can see, most of the patients have either zero or one to three crises. And there are outliers who have more than three or more than six patients. So the number of patients which we are very familiar with in some institutions really constitute only a minority of the total patient population. Why are these important? Well, we talked about the VOCs being the most common cause for healthcare encounters, and it obviously negatively impacts quality of life. And we all know that an acute pain crisis is not just a nuisance, but could lead to life-threatening complications such as acute chest, on occasion multi-organ failure, and even mortality. You hear of patients dying in the hospital uh, after being admitted with a pain crisis. And this is also supported by CSSCD data, uh, which showed an increased mortality, especially in patients over 20 years of age. And here are the numbers. People who had more than three VOCs per year had a mortality rate of 3.74 per 100 patient years, whereas less than three, this number was almost half, uh, or less than half of that number. So it's an important entity. Now, what we also have come to recognize recently is in early stages in the pediatric population and in most adolescents, Pain is usually acute and episodic, and in between, patients are almost pain-free. But as we go along, a certain fraction of patients develop chronic pain, and there are different mechanisms that could lead to the generation of this chronic pain syndrome. Uh, now, a landmark study in this was Wally Smith's Pisces study, where he took 232 uh, patients aged 16 and older, and analyzed their pain diaries and reports uh, for six months of daily pain diaries. And importantly, pain was reported daily in about over half of the patients. Now, also importantly, about 30% or a third of the patients reported pain in more than 95% of diary days. So this is typical chronic pain. And of course, these led to a worse quality of life compared to the general population. And men and women uh, reported similar pain experiences. This is a 
analysis of the frequency of chronic pain in our institution. Chronic pain is defined by experiencing pain more than 50% of the time for over six months of period. And as you can see, in the teenagers, adolescents, uh, about only 10% met this definition, whereas there was an age-dependent increase in the frequency, uh, exceeding over 50% of those in the 30 to 40 year age group. And then this was less, uh, a little less in the over 40 group, perhaps reflecting selection uh, of a milder phenotype overall. Acute chest syndrome remains the number one cause of mortality, both in children and adults, and it's defined as an acute pulmonary infiltrate involving more than one segment, and it can be associated with fever, chest pain, cough, and dyspnea. Uh, second most common cause of hospitalizations, and it has a recurrence rate of 80%, and more alarmingly, in some cases, it could lead to a multi-organ failure syndrome characterized with acute kidney injury and uh, liver failure in some instances. Now, there are many causes that could lead to an acute chest syndrome. In Elliot Wyczynski's study published in 2000, uh, clearly there were two aspects. Number one, the etiologies were different in the pediatric group versus the adults. Uh, in kids, it was mostly infections, viral infections, and in adults, a pulmonary fat embolism was identified as an important cause. And then there are other uh, etiologies that could lead to an acute chest. In terms of the risk factors, young age remains an important risk factor, low hemoglobin F level, and there's an increase from uh, 5 to 15 percent if your fetal hemoglobin increases from 5 to 15, that results in a 50% reduction in acute chest. And also, high hemoglobin, high baseline hemoglobin is a risk factor, as well as a high steady state white cell count. Uh, precipitating factors include vasoocclusive episodes, asthma or reactive airways disease, surgery, anesthesia, and different infections, viral, bacterial, mycoplasmal. In terms of pathogenesis, I think there have been different studies incriminating different mechanisms, but suffice it to say that generally it reflects a heightened pulmonary vascular inflammation, which can be triggered by any of the above-mentioned factors. There is increased intrapulmonary sickling, increased adhesion of adhesion molecules, and in some studies uh, there has been a role for endothelin-1 in the development of an acute chest syndrome. In terms of management, this is an algorithm. I'm not going to go into the details in this slide, but it uh, can range anywhere from a mild to very severe multi-organ disease, and the management is accordingly, uh, it could be just supportive and antibiotics, or oxygenation, or it could lead to red cell exchange in severe cases, uh, and in terms of prevention, hydroxyurea and on occasion chronic transfusion have been shown in many studies 
to decrease the frequency of an acute chest syndrome. In terms of managing an acute chest syndrome, important points to remember is rapid pain control, and the American Society of Hematology Guidelines panel uh, has recommended that the dose to first analgesic in the ED not be more than 60 minutes, frequent assessment of pain, uh, and individualized opioid dosing rather than starting from scratch, especially in patients, the vast majority of whom will not be narcotic naive. Uh, hydration should be done carefully. Uh, empiric antibiotics can be used. Incentive spirometry has been shown in some studies to be important in preventing, obviously, oxygen uh, administration. And uh, transfusions, either simple in patients who present with anemia, a drop in their baseline hemoglobin, or exchange transfusion. And there are reports in more severe cases that addition of plasma exchange to red cell exchange can also lead to uh, rapid recovery. Another aspect of sickle complications is well known, especially in the pediatric age group, stroke. Uh, in terms of the prevention of stroke, what we have learned in the past few decades is that transcranial Doppler screening identifies patients at risk, and by uh, instituting a chronic transfusion therapy, this can be mitigated. Uh, these were findings of the STOP studies, uh, and importantly, if you identify patients at risk and put them in a transfusion regimen, uh, you result in a 90% risk reduction for acute stroke. Uh, secondary prevention uh, is well known and more established than uh, primary prevention. The questions with secondary uh, prevention is there's no clear data on how long to keep patients on chronic transfusions and when to stop. Splenic sequestration is another complication, especially seen in young children before spleen is totally infarcted and becomes fibrotic. Uh, it can occur also on milder phenotypes such as SC and S-beta plus who have preserved their spleen into adulthood. Uh, it usually presents as a hypovolemic condition uh, which requires rapid restoration of the circulating blood volume. Uh, presents with left upper quadrant pain, fullness, and a drop in hemoglobin in face of reticulocytosis, and increase in the spleen size. Uh, treatment uh, starts with restoration of the blood volume, but careful, uh, because when the sequestration resolves, there may be an increase in circulating blood volume that needs to be taken into consideration. Liver disease can be very variable. Uh, it could be a result of sickling. There are different syndromes that have been described, such as acute sickle hepatic crisis, hepatic sequestration, or intrahepatic cholestasis. Obviously, viral hepatitis can play a role. And then there are other causes of liver injury. Uh, I should mention transfusional iron overload. We have all seen very dramatic pictures in adults 
with significant iron overload that uh, lead to mortality. In terms of management, again, uh, management depends on the severity of the syndrome and ranges from supportive care all the way to red cell exchange. Uh, in severe cases, especially with very high bilirubin, uh, there is a need for re reduction of the percent sickle hemoglobin. Pulmonary hypertension is described as pulmonary artery pressure greater than 25 millimeters at rest. Uh, it's seen in about 6 to 10 percent of adults with sickle cell associated with rather high mortality, 37 percent at six years, and screening should be done by echocardiogram, uh, and especially subjects who do show a tricuspid regurgitant jet velocity of greater than three meters per second should be referred for right heart catheterization, and if pulmonary hypertension is confirmed, should be treated uh, with medications for pulmonary hypertension. Kidney involvement, these are studies by uh, Gouache at Emory, published approximately a decade ago, which shows that a significant portion of patients with uh, sickle cell disease show microalbuminuria, and that increases by age, especially in SS disease, and it's less common in other uh, hemoglobinopathies, other sickling disorders, but it does show an age-dependent increase, and in some instances leading to uh, CKD and end-stage renal disease resulting in hemodialysis. Now, in terms of therapeutic approaches, my colleagues will go into the detail in, with some exciting data, but uh, what I will summarize here is, of course, the importance of general medical care, supportive care, and it includes vaccinations, eye exams, echocardiograms, uh, screening for microalbuminuria, management of pain, both acute and chronic, and management of other complications. In terms of disease-modifying therapies, again, we will hear from my colleagues. Uh, there is hydroxyurea, uh, time-honored, we can say now, uh, almost 23 years since its approval. And then in the past four years, we have seen three other drugs, uh, L-glutamine, cruzandizumab, and voxelator, which we'll hear in detail about. In terms of curative therapies, stem cell transplantation is one, and there are exciting new developments in gene therapy. Uh, multiple studies are ongoing. Just to summarize some of the data obtained from uh, stem cell transplantation, this was from a review that was published in Blood. Over 1,000 patients with sickle cell disease have been transplanted since the first case in 1986. And mind you, that case was not transplanted for sickle indication, but that was a teenager who developed AML or ALL, I forgot which one, for leukemia. And then it was noted that uh, in addition to improving the ALL, the patient was cured of sickle cell disease as well. 
Now, the results are remarkable. Event-free survival of 91%, uh, overall survival of 94%, with only 7% mortality, which is far better than any other transplant outcomes. Uh, in terms of donors, of course, the best results are with HLA-matched siblings, followed by matched unrelated donors. Recently, haploidentical transplants have been gaining popularity uh, and show some good results. And then, of course, long-term risks, GVHD is well known, uh, infertility, and in some cases, second malignancy. And I mentioned that uh, sibling, HLA match sibling transplants have the best results, and the others uh, that are still accumulating. Uh, Long-term survival is possible. Uh, and HLBI began work on the data catalyst, uh, showing, uh, collecting data on uh, NHLBI-funded projects. Uh, and we will see what the results will show. Now, in terms of unmet needs, uh, one of those certainly is improving the access to care, especially in adults. We know that pediatric care is more widely available, but uh, when it comes to a stage of transition, mostly in many places, patients fell through the cracks and offering patients more treatments, more clinical trials is the way to go. Uh, we need alternatives to transfusion for stroke prevention, improving adherence to disease-modifying therapies. As many of you may know, this is an important goal of the currently ongoing Sickle Cell Disease Implementation Consortium. Uh, we're part of that consortium. Uh, and uh, combination therapies, uh, with different disease-modifying agents, either for hemoglobin F induction or targeting other mechanisms downstream from sickling, which may improve the course of the disease. And to be able to do all of this, we definitely need uh, funding for sickle cell disease treatment centers, uh, as exemplified by hemophilia treatment centers and cystic fibrosis models. We are far behind these two diseases. This is my last slide. This shows some of the milestones uh, in our understanding and advances in treatment of sickle cell disease. Uh, cooperative study of sickle cell disease was in the uh, 70s to 90s, and prophylactic penicillin, MSH, STOP trials, baby hug, twitch, sustain, glutamine, and there was uh, approval of crizanlizumab and voxelator for sickle cell disease in 2019. I think that's it for me. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Dr. Kutlar, for that overview. So we've heard where we've been, and now I have the pleasure to work with my colleague, Dr. Heaney, to tell you where we are. Uh, and at the end, we'll wrap it up with Dr. Saraf telling us where we're headed. So I'm gonna focus this half of the second segment on hydroxyurea, transfusions, and L-glutamine. 
So hydroxyurea was actually synthesized in Germany in the 1800s and then later developed in the 1950s as an anti-cancer drug and has been used to treat conditions such as uh, myeloproliferative disorders, melanoma, ovarian cancer, as well as psoriasis. Its primary target is ribonucleotide reductases, and as you see, the figure on the right has many mechanisms of action, including increasing nitric oxide, which in turn decreases vasoconstriction. Its myelosuppressive effects decrease leukocytes and platelets. Uh, there's uh, evidence to support hydroxyurea decreasing a vascular adhesion, and of course, the fact that it increases fetal hemoglobin, which is protective. So how do we know about its uh, role in fetal hemoglobin? Well, it was actually first tested in sickle cell disease in 1984. And if you look at this JCI publication, I always laugh because apparently in 1984, you could get a JCI paper with only two patients. So two patients were uh, presented in this manuscript uh, who were given hydroxyurea. And it was demonstrated that hydroxyurea increased production of fetal hemoglobin in these two patients, diluted the number of circulating sickle cells, and increased their overall hemoglobin level. About a decade, lever, a decade later, a landmark clinical trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the multi-center study on hydroxyurea. This was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trial of adults with sickle cell anemia who were eligible if they had had at least three pain crises in the previous year. About 299 individuals were enrolled and randomized either to daily oral hydroxyurea or placebo, with the rationale that increasing levels of hemoglobin F might actually decrease the frequency of painful crises. As you'll see on the bottom right, they demonstrated that subjects taking hydroxyurea daily had higher F cells than those taking daily placebo. In looking at the clinical outcomes of the MSH trial, patients in the hydroxyurea arm had fewer pain crises per year with a median of 2.5 per year versus 4.5 per year in the placebo group. And you'll see in the figures on the right, those taking hydroxyurea had longer median times to both the first and second pain crises. Patients taking hydroxyurea had fewer episodes of acute chest syndrome, fewer of them underwent transfusions, and there were no treatment-related deaths. Importantly, no patients developed cancer during the study. Uh, the MSH investigators concluded that hydroxyurea reduces the median annual rate of painful crises by 44%. And based on these data, hydroxyurea was approved by the FDA in 1998 for the prevention of pain crises in adults with sickle cell. There's long-term follow-up published by Dr. Steinberg and colleagues that shows uh, over an 18-year period of follow-up of the MSH participants that individuals taking hydroxyurea have a reduction in mortality. And you'll see in the figure on the right that the longer a person is exposed to hydroxyurea, better, the better their chances at prolonged survival. In looking at this long-term observation follow-up study, there were no significant additional side effects and no treatment-related cancer diagnoses. What about infants? Well, Dr. Wang and colleagues initiated the baby hug trial. This was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial of infants ages 9 to 18 months with sickle cell anemia. They enrolled nearly 200 participants and randomized them either to hydroxyurea at 20 milligrams per kilogram per day or placebo for a duration of two years. As you'll see on the right in the figures, infants on hydroxyurea had an increase in their hemoglobin, fetal hemoglobin, and MCV with a reduction in white blood cells, neutrophils, and reticulocytes as expected, and only rare and reversible severe episodes of neutropenia. 
In looking at clinical significance, the babies randomized to the hydroxyurea arm, as you'll see in the figures on the right, had a reduction in pain episodes, fewer episodes of the acute chest syndrome and dactylitis, and needed fewer transfusions compared to the babies randomized to the placebo arm. Overall, it was deemed that hydroxyurea was well tolerated in the baby hug trial. What about in older children? Well, there are no randomized trials, but studies have showed reduced pain and hospitalizations, as you'll see in the figure on the right. There is also a study that showed that hydroxyurea prevents the development of abnormal transcranial Dopplers in children. This study looked at 110 children on hydroxyurea with sickle cell anemia at least the age of five years and followed them for a median of 4.4 years. None of those children developed a conditional or abnormal transcranial Doppler during that time. There was also another published study that showed that children taking hydroxyurea have an improved quality of life. As such, the FDA approved hydroxyurea four years ago for use in pediatric sickle cell patients above the age of two to reduce the frequency of painful crises as well as the need for blood transfusions. What about official treatment recommendations? Well, if you look at the NHLBI expert panel report uh, published in 2014, they do give some recommendations on who should be treated with hydroxyurea. For adults, it's recommended that adults who have at least three pain crises in the previous 12 months be considered for hydroxyurea, as well as pain that interferes with either daily activities or quality of life. It should also be considered in adults with a history of severe or recurrent episodes of the acute chest syndrome, and in those who have symptomatic anemia. For infants, the NHLBI expert panel report suggested offering treatment regardless of clinical severity to reduce complications in any infant at least nine months of age. What are some unresolved issues? Well, although hydroxyurea is clearly beneficial to individuals living with sickle cell disease, there is still limited access to hydroxyurea, both in well-resourced countries like the United States and especially in under-resourced countries where the majority of individuals with sickle cell disease around the globe live. There still remain some patient and health practitioner concerns about its overall effectiveness and especially safety. Some examples of these safety concerns include spermatogenesis and teratogenicity. Another concern is that there's really a trial and error approach to dosing hydroxyurea to its maximally tolerated dose, which has been predictive of good clinical response. So barriers, I think you'll agree with me, need solutions. We are at ASH, and solutions are often embedded in research. So let's talk about some of these solutions that are embedded in research. If you look at the TREAT study, Therapeutic Response Evaluation and Adherence Trial, this was a single institution prospective open-label study of hydroxyurea in children whose objective was to develop a personalized pharmacokinetic guided dosing strategy to get to MTD. In fact, the primary endpoint in the study was time to maximally tolerate a dose. This was defined as no change in dose over the previous eight weeks and adequate myelosuppression. About 50 children were enrolled with a median age of 11 months. Whole blood was collected at three time points following a single oral 20 milligram per kilogram dose of hydroxyurea. You can see examples of these PK profiles on the top right. Uh, hydroxyurea was measured by HPLC, and individual PK data from the 20 milligram per kilogram test dose were then used to calculate a starting dose projected to yield an optimal AUC. 
The results of the study showed that time to MTD was significantly shorter for participants enrolled in this TREAT study, a median of 4.8 months, compared to three comparison studies, as you'll see in the bottom right figure, that being Hustle, Switch, and Twitch, which had a medium time to MTD of 7.6 months. Interestingly and importantly, 64% of patients in TREAT required no adjustment from their original PK-guided starting dose. This has been expanded in the hydroxyurea optimization through precision study, also known as HOPS. The goal of this study is to assess the clinical feasibility, benefits, and safety of PK-guided dosing of hydroxyurea for children with sickle cell disease. This is a randomized multicenter trial that compares standard versus PK dosing of hydroxyurea in children as they initiate therapy. Participants can be from six months of age up to 21 years and are randomized to receive hydroxyurea using a starting dose of 20 milligrams per kilograms per day or a PK-guided dose. The primary endpoint is mean percent hemoglobin F after six months of hydroxyurea. This study is ongoing. 70% of participants have enrolled to date, and it would be important to follow the results of this study as they become available. Next is the ESCORT hydroxyurea or ESCORT HU cohort study. The um, origins of this study are that following European Medicines Agency approval of hydroxyurea in 2007, that agency requested that there be the initiation of a European prospective multicenter study over a 10-year period, with the main objective being to refine the safety profile of hydroxyurea and also identify if there are any unexpected toxicities. Escort HU was designed as a phase four observational study with no systematic attempt to reach MTD. Uh, charts were reviewed for medical history, including any sickle cell disease complications one year prior to inclusion. They were also uh, identified if they had pain crises at lasting at least 48 hours and any complications such as acute chest syndrome, hospitalizations, transfusions, pregnancies, and fatherhood. Laboratory data were also collected, as well as safety. Nearly 2,000 participants were enrolled. Nearly half were children. If you look at uh, the safety data in the escort HU study, neutropenia and thrombocytopenia were the most common AEs, as would be expected with the myelosuppressive agent. Skin toxicity were the second most common AEs, which goes along with the uh, previous findings. There were 33 deaths, only one death was in a child, and this was after hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. In the 32 adult deaths, 31 of them were deemed unrelated to hydroxyurea. One adult death was from myelodysplastic syndrome, and a causal relation to long-term hydroxyurea use could not be excluded in the ESCORT HU study. What about pregnancies in the ESCORT cohort? Well, there were 125 pregnancies among 101 women. There were 12 pregnancies of partners of male patients who were taking hydroxyurea. And in all of these pregnancies, there were no malformations among the neonates reported. Looking at clinical uh, uh, improvements in the ESCORT uh, uh, cohort, uh, if you look after one year of treatment, both in the pediatric and the adult subgroups, there was statistically significant improvement in the mean number of VOCs, acute chest syndrome episodes, 
number of hospitalizations, hospitalization days, as well as the need for blood transfusion. So both laboratory and clinical improvement in those taking hydroxyurea compared to baseline. These are the laboratory data, which show that there is an expected increase in the hemoglobin level, as well as the percent hemoglobin F, with an increase in MCV, which would be expected in anyone taking hydroxyurea. And interestingly, again, there was no concerted effort to reach MCD in this study. It was strictly observational. And you'll see that these clinical benefits occurred despite uh, reaching uh, MTD in these patients as the absolute neutrophil count in both adults and children remained above four. What about looking globally? Well, the REACH study uh, is doing just that and has been published and also presented at a plenary session here at ASH a couple of years ago. This was a phase one, two open-label global trial whose goal was to assess the feasibility, safety, and benefits of hydroxyurea in children with sickle cell anemia in sub-Saharan Africa. The starting dose was between 15 and 20 milligrams per kilogram per day, with a dose escalation after six months of treatment. The primary safety endpoint was hematologic dose-limiting toxicity in the first three months of treatment. The expected and allowable rates were 20 and 30 percent, respectively. Additional endpoints included feasibility, safety, and clinical benefits. So what did they find in the REACH study? Well, 99 percent that 600 children completed three months of trial treatment. And the overall retention at three years was 94%. So first and foremost, this tells us that clinical research uh, can be performed in sub-Saharan Africa and that there are high uh, retention rates in clinical research in that part of the world. The mean time to MTD was 11 months. Rates of adherence, well, they were very high. 90% of assessments showed that there were no missed doses. The primary safety endpoint of a hematologic dose-limiting toxicity in the first three months occurred in only 5% of participants, well below the expected and allowable rates. Looking at the laboratory effects of hydroxyurea in the REACH study, mean hemoglobin increased uh, after 12 months by a gram per deciliter, as did the MCV. The mean fetal hemoglobin increased by 12.5%, and as expected, the mean ANC decreased by 2,500. Clinical benefits were also seen in the REACH study. There was reduction, as you can see in the, these figures, compared to the screening phase of VOC pain episodes, acute chest syndrome, the need for transfusions, malaria infection, as well as death. Final thoughts on hydroxyurea. It's an excellent disease-modifying therapy. Most individuals uh, who could benefit from it, I truly believe, are not taking it. And increasing knowledge of hydroxyurea's benefits and safety, as well as increasing the ease of dosing, could improve both quality as well as length of life for those living around the globe with sickle cell disease. Now on to blood transfusions. So they remain the mainstay of therapy in many situations for sickle cell disease, and it's used in both the acute and chronic settings. It's primarily guideline-driven due to a lack of high-quality evidence, especially in adults. It's relatively safe and available as an intervention in, in resource nations, but unfortunately not as safe or as available in under-resourced nations. Risks are often overlooked or underappreciated. These include red blood cell alloimmunization, iron overload, transfusion-related reactions, and catheter-related infection and thrombosis for those patients who require indwelling catheters for transfusion support. 
There are many guidelines out there for transfusions and sickle cell disease. I want to focus on the first and last on this slide, the NHLBI expert panel report recommendations from 2014, and then at the end summarize the ASH 2020 guidelines. So what are the indications for transfusion? Well, first, looking at prophylactic perioperative transfusion in those with sickle cell disease. The NHLBI recommendations are to transfuse to a goal of 10 prior to undergoing any surgical procedure involving general anesthesia. And they recommend consulting a sickle cell expert if the baseline hemoglobin is on the higher side, if it's a very high-risk surgery, or for other uh, genotypes such as SC and S-beta+. When is acute transfusion therapy warranted? Well, the NHLBI expert report gave graded recommendations as well as consensus recommendations. And just to be brief, these include uh, symptomatic acute chest syndrome, uh, symptomatic severe acute chest syndrome, acute splenic sequestration with anemia, and stroke. And consensus recommendations to transfuse either by simple or exchange transfusion for hepatic sequestration, intrahepatic cholestasis, multi-organ failure, aplastic crisis, and symptomatic anemia. I think it's also helpful that these uh, guidelines also recommended when not to transfuse. These can be very helpful for your non-specialist colleagues who like to transfuse um, in, in settings where it's not uh, validated. And this includes for uncomplicated painful crisis, episodes of priapism, asymptomatic anemia, as well as acute kidney injury without multi-organ system failure. What about chronic transfusion therapy? The recommendations from the expert panel report uh, with high-quality evidence is to institute chronic transfusion therapy in any child with a TCD reading over 200 centimeters per second. And although lower quality evidence but moderate strength of recommendation to also initiate chronic transfusion therapy in adults and children with a previous clinically overt stroke. Transfusion management and monitoring, there are some recommendations uh, which include CE and Kel matching to minimize the risk of red blood cell allo immunization, to be careful not to uh, transfuse above a hemoglobin of 10 to prevent hyperviscosity, to have your goal for chronic transfusions to maintain a hemoglobin S level below 30%, and also to uh, prescribe chronic transfusions following an established monitoring protocol. And on the right, you'll see a picture of a, 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 a protocol that's in the expert panel report that individuals can use at their institutions. What about preventing transfusion-related complications? Well, first, it's very critical to identify the alloantibody history in the patients by calling around to all the blood banks where the patient says they have been transfused in the past, to try to avoid new antibodies by CE and Cal matching, avoiding hyperviscosity, monitoring for iron overload with T2 or R2 MRI of the liver, and to institute iron chelation for iron overload to prevent iron overload-related complications, including liver failure. Well, how, how does this differ in any way from the ASH 2020 guidelines? Well, in my opinion, the NHLBI expert panel report and the ASH 2020 guidelines are fairly well aligned. But the key differences are that the ASH 2020 guidelines actually recommend a preoperative goal hemoglobin above 9 uh, and have a very strong recommendation for prophylactic red cell antigen matching not only for RH, but CE and Cal. 
They also addressed additional clinical questions that the NHLBI expert report didn't, including extended RBC antigen profiling by genotype or serology, how to treat uh, transfusion reactions, either with steroids, IVIG, or rituximab, and to consider automated red cell exchange over simple or manual red cell exchange in patients who are on chronic transfusions or who have severe acute chest syndrome. Unresolved issues related to transfusion therapy, particularly someone like myself who takes care of adults with sickle cell disease, is knowing how long you keep someone on chronic transfusion therapy for stroke prevention. We inherit kids with abnormal TCDs when they transition into adulthood, but we've not yet established how long they should remain on chronic transfusion therapy. It's still unresolved um, with limited data on the use of chronic transfusions for uh, prevention of VOCs and ACS, although this is commonly employed. We also need to do a lot more work on understanding the role of transfusion during pregnancy. And we need to also come together to uh, have some consensus as there is a lot of variation even amongst centers of excellence on red blood cell antigen matching, iron overload monitoring, and when to use simple versus manual or automated exchange. L-glutamine is what I'll end with. So L-glutamine improves the ratio of NADH to total NAD, which has been postulated to improve red blood cells, tolerate increased oxidative stress. L-glutamine was uh, studied in a phase three multi-center randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial that led to its FDA approval in 2017 for individuals with sickle cell disease ages five years and older. This study was an, uh, a study in which oral twice-daily L-glutamine versus placebo randomized two to one was given to subjects for 48 weeks. Subjects were included if they had SS or S-beta-0 thalassemia, were at least five years of age, and had at least two pain crises in the previous year. Two-thirds in each of the groups, both the L-glutamine and the placebo group, were on background hydroxyurea. In looking at those who completed the trial, 64% in the L-glutamine arm completed the trial, and 76% completed the trial on the placebo arm. In looking at endpoints, there was a significant improvement in the median number of pain crises through week 48, as you'll see in the figure on the right. There was a reduction from four median pain crises per year in the placebo group versus three in the uh, L-glutamine-treated group. As you'll see in the, the right two figures, both the median time to first VOC and time to second VOC were also statistically longer. Um, AEs and SAEs were actually higher overall in the placebo group, and AEs over 5% incidence in the L-glutamine group included nausea, arm, leg, and back pain. So in looking at clinical outcomes, uh, you'll see in this table that there was also a significant decrease in the median number of hospitalizations for sickle cell-related pain, the number of days spent in the hospital, as well as episodes of acute chest syndrome in individuals who were in the L-glutamine arm. So the endpoint uh, of, uh, of the L-glutamine trial was a little bit different from uh, the other VOC prevention trials, the uh, MSH study, which I presented, the multicenter study of hydroxyurea, and the sustained study of crizolizumab that my colleague, uh, Dr. Heaney, will present shortly. Um, and because of this, uh, Dr. Zaidi and colleagues uh, decided to reanalyze the L-glutamine data and actually look at mean, median annualized uh, crisis rate. And they showed that when you look at the L-glutamine data in this way, which is the, the bars in the middle, 
there was a relatively similar, similar percent decrease in median annual crisis rate reduction of 45 percent uh, compared to MSH of 44 percent as well as 45 percent in sustain. So just looking at the uh, data a little bit differently, uh, they, they uh, concluded would make it easier for clinicians to present comparisons between the three drugs to their patients by comparing apples to apples. Next, I'd like to hand it over to my colleague, Dr. Heaney, who will discuss the uh, newly approved or relatively newly approved drugs, crizinlizumab and buxolator. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Andamarum. It's my pleasure to uh, speak to you today. Thank you for the invitation. My name is Matthew Heaney. I'm the director of the Sickle Cell Program and the Associate Chief for Hematology at the Dana-Farber Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorder Center. And so, as Dr. Annamariam pointed out, uh, I'll be speaking to you today about voxelator and crizinlizumab. This overview cartoon shows you some of the uh, points in the pathophysiology of sickle cell disease that can attempt to be uh, intervened to, for disease modification. And I'll be looking here in the green circles at anti-sickling agents, particularly those uh, taking advantage of the uh, shifting the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve uh, to prevent sickling and then also anti-adhesion molecules uh, looking to interfere with these both cell-cell interactions of circulating cells and their interaction with endothelium. So at the risk of boring you, on the left is, the, is a GIF of the uh, hemoglobin molecule, as you can see the oxygen uh, molecule going in and out of the heme ring, uh, which results in the movement from the deoxygenated relaxed state, I mean, uh, to the, pardon me, deoxygenated tense state to the relaxed oxygenated state. And with that conformational change, there's the exposure of the hydrophobic valine residue, which is the mutation for hemoglobin S. And it's the exposure of this hydrophobic residue which results in aqueous solution inside the cell of the polymerization of sickle hemoglobin in a very precise geometric pattern, which results in a 14-stranded helical fiber which changes the cell shape from the normal biconcave disc to the pathognomonic sickle shape seen here in the cartoon and in electron microscopy. And so you're all familiar here with the hemoglobin oxygenation uh, dissociation curve, that's sigmoidal shape, uh, showing the cooperativity of uh, oxygen binding to the hemoglobin molecule. And this uh, in black here represents the hemoglobin A's sigmoidal shape and the measure P50, which describes the affinity of any given hemoglobin for oxygen. Uh, it's a useful clinical marker, and here would show um, at the 50 percentile oxygen saturation what partial pressure of oxygen uh, is required. And so for hemoglobin A, that value is 26.5 millimeters of mercury, whereas in fetal hemoglobin, which has a relatively higher hemoglobin uh, affinity for oxygen, the curve is shifted to the left with an approximate P50 value of around 20 milligrams of mercury. Whereas sickle hemoglobin has a relatively low uh, oxygen affinity with the curve shifted to the right and the P50 associated with that approximately 34 millimeters of mercury. And so in an attempt to take advantage of this, um, Voxelator was developed. This is a rationally uh, designed small molecule which is an allosteric modifier of hemoglobin which stabilizes hemoglobin in the um, oxygen bound formation in a dose-dependent manner. Uh, one of the feats of biochemistry of this molecule is that it's very highly selective for the amino terminus of alpha-globin, 
And in initially animal models and subsequently human models showed in a dose-dependent fashion that it can reduce uh, erythrocyte sickling and also prolong red cell half-life by reducing uh, hemolytic rate. And so again here, this cartoon showing the biconcave uh, red blood cell as it deoxygenates the polymerization of the hemoglobin S results in the cell shape change, which has the downstream consequences of a shortened red cell lifespan with, with uh, hemolysis and the consequent uh, symptoms associated with that, as well as vasoocclusion leading to um, pain, uh, organ damage, and uh, ultimately shortened lifespan. And the goal here for Voxelator is to increase the hemoglobin S oxygen affinity and thereby try to decrease the polymerization that occurs intracellularly and have uh, a significant effect both on the reduction in hemolysis and the downstream consequences of that, as well as to reduce the number of vasoocclusive crises by improving blood flow. So uh, the phase three pivotal trial uh, of Voxelator was called the HOPE trial. You can see here on the left the key inclusion criteria that it included middle school age children up through adulthood. It was uh, all sickle cell disease genotypes were included. Patients had to have a baseline hemoglobin between 5.5 and 10.5 and had to have some degree of uh, vasoocclusive frequency between 1 and 10 annually. Patients on this were allowed to continue hydroxyurea at a stable dose. And the patients were stratified to either placebo or one of two dose uh, sizes here, 900 milligrams or 1,500 milligrams. The treatment for the study was uh, up to 72 weeks. However, the primary endpoint assessment uh, was a surrogate marker for mortality, which was the percentage of patients to achieve a hemoglobin increase of greater than one gram per deciliter at the week 24 time point. And so this from their New England Journal publication shows the waterfall plot of their highest dose, the 1,500 milligrams versus placebo. And as shown here, uh, almost 60% of patients treated at the highest dose level uh, met the one gram uh, per deciliter increase in hemoglobin uh, that was their primary endpoint compared to those with placebo, which was a relatively even uh, increase and decrease in the patients who were treated. Looking at this in a slightly different way, looking at the durability of the, of the benefit and the timing of it, it's quite clear that those patients at the high dose 1,500 milligrams daily had a very rapid increase in the hemoglobin over the first few weeks uh, of uh, being exposed to the medication, but that this was durable over the first 24 weeks of the study shown here in blue. The study was not um, powered to look at uh, the effect on vasoocclusive crises. However, there was a directional improvement um, from 3.19 annualized uh, VOC crises down to 2.77. Um, so this was uh, promising or at least hopeful uh, for um, this uh, particular outcome. The most common adverse events here, um, there were grade three adverse events occurred approximately equally in the 1500 milligram daily group and the placebo group. Um, but notably, differences in, in AEs were particularly around headache, but uh, also gastrointestinal side effects of diarrhea and nausea um, in the treatment group. More recently, uh, the full 72 weeks uh, of treatment uh, were published, the effect, and you can see here, similar as was seen in the uh, initial publication, there is a relatively rapid rise in hemoglobin in the treatment arm, which is durable throughout the entire 72 weeks of the study. So on the basis of the uh, initial um, 
uh, trial. Uh, the FDA granted uh, approval of Oxelator with the indication for the treatment of sickle cell disease in adult and pediatric patients aged greater than 12. However, this indication was approved on the basis of the surrogate marker of increased hemoglobin, and for continued approval, the FDA had indicated this was contingent upon verification and description of clinical benefit in subsequent confirmatory trials. And the sponsor has gone on to uh, perform and is continuing to perform some of these trials uh, some of which I've listed here, the HOPE Kids trial, uh, looking as an open-label uh, trial, looking at uh, children for the safety and tolerability uh, of Oxelator, the HOPE Kids 2 trial, which is now also underway, a double-blind placebo-controlled trial to evaluate the effect of Oxelator on cerebral blood flow measured by TCD, and then a variety of open-label extensions, particularly in the pediatric arm. Um, but there are a number of other ongoing uh, studies of this medication in the, in the sickle cell disease. Uh, here is just uh, an early uh, look at the uh, Hope Kids study. Um, and here you can see that it recapitulates what was seen in the adults or in those uh, patients uh, over age 12 at the 24-week mark. You can see this very early increase and then sustained increase in hemoglobin. Uh, slightly lower, but approximately half of the patients treated uh, uh, achieved the hemoglobin response of an increase of one gram per deciliter over the treatment period. And this shows uh, here the reduction in hemolytic markers, uh, reduction in uh, indirect bilirubin, LDH, and reticulocyte count, uh, suggesting a similar uh, pathophysiologic uh, interruption of that process. And so here at ASH, there's a, um, some two, several uh, actually abstracts, but here's one I've highlighted looking at a multi-center uh, real-world experience with Foxellator as this is now entered into the clinical arena. The retro study is a multi-center post-marketing retrospective study uh, that is looking at 300 patients uh, over age 12, of course, and designed to collect and aggregate and characterize real-world retrospective laboratory and clinical data. And Dr. Andamaram will be presenting this um, on Monday. Turning now to uh, interruption of adhesion as an attempt to uh, interfere with the pathophysiology and have a uh, positive disease-modifying effect, turn to the um, intracellular adhesion molecules, the selectins, which uh, the P-selecting glycoprotein ligand 1, or PSGL1, is found on circulating leukocytes in particular, shown here in red. And this can interact with its binding partner, P-selectin, which can be found on activated platelets here in the cartoon, or an activated endothelium. And it's felt that this P-selectin-PSGL1 interaction is very important for that initial uh, leukocyte attachment and rolling uh, in, the, in the vascular endothelium, and that subsequent interactions with other selectins, including E-selectin with PSGL1, um, and then subsequently with the Integrin ICAM-VCAM system to result in firm adhesion prior to diapedesis and uh, entry into the tissues. And so it's found uh, from early on elegant studies in animals um, that this selectin interaction is very important and the white blood cell uh, plays also a very important role uh, in the initiation or uh, continuation of vasoocclusion. So crizolizumab uh, is a, um, a monoclonal antibody, a humanized monoclonal antibody which inhibits P-selectin specifically on the surface of the activated endothelium and platelets to block the interactions of these uh, cells, both uh, circulating and with the endothelial cell themselves. 
And this uh, molecule, as I mentioned, had the, uh, the P-selectin um, attaching parts of the antibody uh, are murine, uh, whereas the rest of it is humanized um, and is a sort of classic biologic uh, approach. So the pivotal uh, trial of this medication was the phase two SUSTAIN trial, um, which was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial at almost 200 randomized patients at 60 sites across the U.S. and also into the Caribbean and South America. Um, notably here, this was included adolescents age 16 and older, all genotypes represented. And as with most biologic, there was a loading dose uh, given parenterally every two weeks and then monthly thereafter. And here is the uh, major outcome of the trial here, showing that the annual uh, rate of median rate of crisis per year uh, decreased significantly from those in placebo of nearly three crises per year um, to the high dose five milligram per kilogram arm, almost cut it in half by a 45% reduction, as Dr. Anna Merriam showed us. And this was highly statistically significant. And as is often shown now, Kaplan-Meier curves uh, looking at the time to first vaso-occlusive painful crisis and the time to second vaso-occlusive painful crisis. You can see here in yellow, uh, the high-dose crizolizumab arm had a significantly longer time to first sickle cell pain crisis as well as to second. With respect to safety, um, you can see here, uh, highlighted in red, um, there were really no uh, major uh, changes or differences in the adverse events seen between the treatment arms and the placebo, although perhaps here back pain, uh, nausea, and arthralgia were slightly more uh, represented in the treatment arm. But the serious adverse events were relatively equal. Subsequently, there's been interest um, from the sponsor regarding infusion-related reactions, but these are typically uh, mild to moderate, often occur uh, during the first one to two doses. Um, and their recommendations, if they are mild to moderate, to interrupt the infusion or slow the rate of infusion, and if severe, discontinue the infusion. There have been some case reports of more severe infusion-related reactions, but again, these appear to be quite rare. Uh, subsequent sub, uh, subgroup analyses in the post hoc uh, evaluation uh, looked primarily at those patients on both arms who did not experience any VOC crises during the treatment period. Recall. Patients had to have some vaso-occlusive crises to be eligible for the study. But overall, in the population, about 35% of patients at the high-dose arm had no VOC at all during the treatment period, compared to those in placebo, 16% uh, had no vaso-occlusive crises. In breaking this down, looking at those uh, within the subgroup analysis who were considered to be potentially more severe to see if this uh, absence of VOC during the treatment period held, held fast, they dichotomized the population into those who had uh, between two and four VOC crises per year versus greater than five. They dichotomized versus homozygous SS disease versus other genotypes and those who were treated with a, uh, a dose, uh, stable dose of hydroxyurea or not. And the table on the right, what I want to show you here is that in the high-dose uh, crizolizumab arm, uh, there was a significant improvement uh, regardless of whether or not they were typically more severe, might be thought of with more frequent vaso-occlusive crises, a reduction um, uh, of uh, the number of crises. Also, in the potentially more severe homozygous SS genotype, there was benefit as there was in the other genotypes. 
And again, interestingly, uh, the hydroxyurea-naive patients may have actually had a greater benefit than those on hydroxyurea at the time, but uh, reflected probably the lower rate in those with baseline uh, hydroxyurea use. And this rather busy slide uh, shows uh, the same data, um, but instead uh, we're using the Kaplan-Meier curve time to first uh, on-treatment vaso-occlusive crisis. So in the left-hand column here, these are the VOCs uh, dichotomized by those in the upper panel between two to four painful crises and those with five to ten painful crises annualized. But the point here is that you can see the dark line, which represents the treatment, uh, treatment population, uh, had a particularly longer time uh, to first on-treatment VOCC crisis. And the same held true in the SS versus the non-SS population and those on hydroxyurea and those not. So uh, even those who might be considered more severe in the group uh, also uh, had equal or um, some significant benefit related to the drug. So all of this uh, led to the indication uh, of, uh, and FDA approval of crizolizumab for the reduction of frequency of vaso-occlusive crises in adults and pediatric patients aged 16 and above. And there are continuing, uh, the sponsors continue with ongoing trials, uh, some of which are uh, listed here and also in the subsequent slides I'll show you. The STAND trial is in a uh, trial looking at, again, uh, patients over the age of 16, but looking at a higher dose of 7.5 milligrams per kilogram compared to the 5 milligrams per kilogram dose. Um, they've also uh, taken on some of the other unmet needs, particularly uh, the treatment of priapism uh, with a phase 2 open-label trial looking uh, at uh, this as an endpoint that potentially could be of benefit. And so this is the SPARTAN trial. And then I have the pleasure of presenting some of the very early data from the SOLAS KIDS trial. This is a phase two open-label trial looking at um, crizolizumab uh, in younger children and the first age cohort I'll present uh, tomorrow here. And the other trial which is uh, going to be presented here at ASH, some information from is the STEADFAST trial. This is a phase two randomized multicenter open-label trial looking the effect of crizolizumab in standard of care versus standard of care alone um, on chronic kidney disease uh, related to sickle cell nephropathy, and this will be presented uh, on Monday by Santosh. And so here in summary, um, a comparison of the available therapies that Dr. Anna and I have presented, uh, presented left to right from the oldest uh, approval drug, uh, hydroxyurea. Some of the key differences here that hydroxyurea is now FDA approved down to age two, as Dr. Aaron mentioned to you, although the uh, NHLBI guidelines recommend the offering of hydroxyurea to uh, all children aged nine months of greater, regardless of severity. Um, this is an oral medication. It's only uh, commercially available in capsules and tablets, which makes it hard to treat these younger children without uh, finding pharmacies who, who can extemporaneously compound this for, the, for you. L-glutamine would be available to the next older population, older than age five. There is a powder commercially available, uh, which makes dosing a little easier in children. Uh, hydroxyurea and glutamine do have uh, some care in, in patients who uh, may have some renal impairment. You have to be a little bit careful with dosing. And as I mentioned, uh, voxelator for children greater than 12, uh, with really the uh, end point here was the increase in, in hemoglobin and in crizolizumab uh, parenterally uh, administered um, to reduce vaso-occlusive crises. And then glutamine and voxelator itself, uh, one must be a little careful if there is hepatic impairment in terms of dosing. So I think I'll give it back to Dr. Okay. Heaney and we'll talk about our first case. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Heaney. If you're... 
So if everybody wants to take a little stretch while seated, please go for it. We have questions coming. Yes. <laughs> Questions coming both from the live audience as well as those at home, but we wanted to do um, some cases and brief panel discussion, and I think a lot of the questions that are coming through uh, that I can actually see in front of me miraculously, um, I think we'll discuss during, during these two cases. So, um, so the first case is 26-year-old Jenny. She has hemoglobin SS disease. She works part-time. She's completing her master's degree. She has a history of frequent uncomplicated VOCs, about four to six per year. She takes hydroxyurea at a dose of 500 milligrams per day and has been at that dose for the last three years. So Jenny starts to experience severe pain in her back and legs, and she goes to her local emergency department for management of this severe pain episode. She mentions to the doctor in the emergency department that she took ibuprofen, and then she also applied heating pads to the painful areas on her body, but didn't really have any relief. She also took one morphine pill that she had on hand at home, but it didn't help her either, and that's why she went to the emergency department. Uh, when she was evaluated, she was found to be alert, very interactive, uh, and appeared to be in no respiratory distress. Uh, her vital signs demonstrated that she was afebrile, her pulse was 90, blood pressure was normal, and she was saturating 99% on room air. Her physical exam was notable for lungs that were clear to auscultation bilaterally. Uh, they took a look at her labs and uh, identified that her baseline absolute neutrophil count was 5,000, baseline hemoglobin was 7.3, and baseline MCV was 85. So this is Jenny. So... We have some questions for my colleagues. One question. How can the frequency of Jenny's VOCs be optimally reduced? This is like a presidential debate. That's what we said. Do you, do you want, <laughs> who do you want to start? Um, Dr. Kutler, why don't you start? Right, well, a couple of things first. There can be a lot of things to be done for Jenny. First of all, you did not mention her body weight, but 500 milligram uh, is an awfully low dose, and that's also corroborated by her MCV of 85. We don't know for it. So the first thing would be probably to increase her hydroxyurea dose to somewhere around 20 milligrams per kilogram uh, and see what happens. Okay, I like, that as a, I like that as a first option. Dr. Saraf. Yeah. Um I'd be interested to know why she's only taking one pill of hydroxyurea a day. Um, perhaps she doesn't like to take medications or pills, um, or is worried about the side effects. Um, and if that was the case, then I would consider some of the alternative uh, options, such as L-glutamine or crizolizumab, to help reduce her VOCs. I agree. I think those are the, the main points here. I think that uh, it does appear at least possibly that she's being underdosed with her hydroxyurea, her ANC here. If this is an acute ANC as she's arrived with pain, that, that may reflect more of the acute uh, uh, leukocytosis and neutrophilia associated with vaso-occlusive pain. But as, uh, uh, as mentioned by Dr. Kutlar, the MCV does suggest that potentially she's not getting, uh, uh, experiencing the medication at a dose which is appropriate. So I think that's probably for a longitudinal point of view, that's where I would, I would work. But then treating with her acute pain, of course, um, there's some... Uh, uh, controversy these days about what type of fluid to use, but usually you want to um, correct any fluid deficit here, uh, either with ringers or with NS, um, and then work on other acute uh, pain uh, 
treatments here and probably, at least in our institution and a younger child, we would probably use uh, Toradol um, uh, and then also uh, an opioid for, of which her choice, we would ask her what's been useful for her in the past. Good, thank you. There are some questions here that I think relate a little bit to this case. Um, so has there been any evidence of drug-associated antibody generation with crizolizumab? Is that a, con a concern or a consideration? There, it's not uh, had any uh, significant, or I don't think any, um, uh, antigenicity that has resulted in neutralizing antibodies towards the drug that I'm aware of. Exactly, thank you. And what, are, what would you say is the true efficacy of these newer agents for VOC reduction in the real world? Um, do you have any anecdotal uh, 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 considerations to share with us in terms of your experience to date with crizolizumab, L-glutamine, and hydroxyurea? Or is there other real-world evidence? Go for it. Well, yeah, good. Uh, I think the real-world evidence continues to be good. I mean, uh, let me speak to crizolizumab first. It works, but there is a critical point which needs to be kept in mind. At least in the adult world, when we see patients and those who have frequent ED visits and hospitalizations, the question, first question is always, is this frequent VOCs or are we seeing acute exacerbations of chronic pain? Mm -hmm. So we have some experience with those patients and when you look at them, you, know, you really don't see much of a difference with cruzanduzumab. So uh, I think we need to be careful in selecting patients who really would benefit from cruzanduzumab. Yeah. Yeah. And voxelotor, if the patient can tolerate because of GI side effects, is very effective. And one of the advantages I think Matt showed in one slide, you can use it in patients with significant CKD. We have used it in patients on dialysis tolerated well and it has increased their hemoglobin no. beyond what you can achieve with erythropoietin. So. Yeah, is this L-glutamine? No, uh, Voxelator. Okay, okay. Um, now, this was a case of uncomplicated VOC, but what if she had clinical evidence or evolution of the acute chest syndrome during this presentation? Would that change in any way uh, the therapy that you would offer her for prevention of acute chest syndrome going forward? in terms of the novel agents and hydroxyurea? Well, my, my hope would be that optimizing hydroxyurea would still be one of my first steps for a more longitudinal, um, medium-term, long-term event, but uh, my hope, uh, the vaso-occlusive endpoint for the crizolizumab trials also included acute chest syndrome, although I don't think it contributed much to the endpoints in the trials. Um, I would still probably think about the crizolizumab uh, being there as well. Um, but uh, Andari has also showed a reduction there, so that would be another option as an oral agent uh, for this patient as well. So, and then the, really the potential, I think many of us feel that a multi-agent approach is probably what's going to be beneficial overall. It's just not how these medications are, are um, developed, and, uh, and uh, at least in pivotal trials, using multiple agents. And there's one last comment here. Um, it, saying that uh, this person admires the panel's mention of the patient's voice in this case, 
and asking, is there any more information in this case or cases like this about the patient's preference? For example, concerns about IV access, access or the ability to get newer drugs and so on. I think, Dr. Saraf, you were kind of talking about that a bit. Like, what are some other issues to consider when choosing an agent for a patient to reduce VOCs? I think when I try to um, initiate disease modification therapy, I really try to integrate the patient's um, thoughts and perceptions into this. Um, and I anecdotally think it may help with compliance. Um, so I talk about the mechanisms of how these different agents work, um, the potential side effects, and then the routes of therapy. Um, some prefer the monthly infusion. They don't have to worry about taking oral medicines, and they have a busy lifestyle and, and can't remember it, uh, while others uh, prefer being at home taking their therapy. So I, I think it has to be an integrated uh, discussion. Thank you very much. Jenny was admitted to the hospital and treated for her pain and then discharged. And during a follow-up with her hematologist, the following options were discussed. Optimizing her dose of hydroxyurea, putting her on chronic transfusions, starting crizolizumab, or L-glutamine. And Jenny actually decided to optimize hydroxyurea over the next six months based on the recommendation of her hematologist. And then at that point, consider adding other treatment options if she didn't see an improvement on hydroxyurea. Go ahead, Dr. Heaney. <laughs> I think those disease-modifying therapy approaches are good. I, I'm not sure I would have opted for chronic transfusion of the data that you showed. I don't think is really uh, showing that that's really appropriate at that point. But anyhow, on to case uh, two. Case two is about David. He's a 39-year-old patient with homozygous SS uh, genotype and chronic kidney disease. He has symptomatic anemia, and until recently, when he developed multiple alloantibodies, he had been receiving uh, approximately three to four transfusions annually. David lives at home with his wife and two-year-old twins, and he works as an accountant. David sees his hematologist regularly, but manages his VOCs primarily at home uh, due to previous negative experiences in the emergency department. He developed myelotoxicity previously to hydroxyurea, even at lower doses. And so what would be an appropriate therapy now for David? Some of his key baseline laboratory findings are seen here on the right. He has a very high hemolytic rate with a baseline hemoglobin below six. Um, the hemolytic rate indicated here also by his high uh, indirect uh, bilirubin, his high LDH, and his high reticulocyte count, reflecting his um, relatively frequent uh, symptomatic anemia transfusions. He has an elevated ferritin, and reflecting his early um, stage uh, chronic kidney disease, he has a baseline creatinine of 1.2. And again, reflecting his, likely his hemolysis, he has a mid-range trans, uh, tricuspid recurgitin jet velocity of 2.8 meters per second. His baseline oxygenation is also tenuous, perhaps at 94, and he has some perhaps early or borderline uh, hypertension. So what therapeutic approach would you take for David? Is he a candidate for any of these new approved emerging therapies? And I get to punish my colleagues up here. So. Um, I'll start to my left. Uh, which uh, novel therapy would be better for David to manage his VOCs, Dr. Saraf? Um, so the, the data for the novel therapies for VOCs would, would be Andari, Elgudimine versus uh, Crizanlizumab, Adactio. Um, my other concern with this patient is that he does have a, a pretty severe hemolytic anemia, has red cell antibodies, and has evidence of um, organ dysfunction. Um, so I'd also want to consider some kind of therapy to help stabilize the hemolysis and the anemia. Um, and so voxelator could be something else to consider. Makes sense. 
Dr. Anamarim. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think what this case is presenting to us is that the, the main uh, concern that he has and what he's presenting with is symptomatic anemia interfering with daily life. He has two-year-old twins. He has a busy job. Uh, but he's also developed uh, significant alloantibodies to transfusions in the past. So transfusions are not a, a good idea for him as a, a sort of a chronic therapy. Um, so I, I agree with Dr. Saraf that sort of an anti-hemolytic agent uh, to improve his hemoglobin and hopefully improve his symptoms from the related anemia would, would be ideal. As uh, I mean, I see a lot of individuals like this, adults with sickle cell disease who have um, uh, signs of kidney disease who, you know, you have to also identify whether or not there could be a component of kidney disease contributing to the anemia as well. So I would want to look at his erythropoietin level and also consider exogenous EPO uh, in this patient, perhaps. Dr. Schuller, do you have anything to add? I agree with my colleagues. I think this patient's pressing issue is to uh, get him off transfusions as he's alloimmunized and iron overloaded. So an anti-hemolytic therapy would be my first choice in this case. Indeed, attempts to raise his hemoglobin with uh, transfusion is now limited and uh, also with hydroxyurea was myelotoxicity. That was, and so really increasing hemoglobin here, also given the overwhelming specter here of his tricuspid recursion jet velocity, again, increasing his hemoglobin would probably also improve his uh, baseline oxygenation. So I think one of those, uh, looking at Voxelator in this case, most likely, I agree. So let's look at the next question. Uh, any other treatment? I think we've talked about that with potentially erythropoietin um, as a potential uh, avenue if there is a, a low level of that. So after discussion uh, with David, uh, crizlizumab was started to manage his VOCs. Um, but since David was also concerned about his symptomatic anemia, as were we, um, Voxelator was started in this case. And that's interesting. Um, I, maybe I'll just ask the team here in the last minute, have, have any of you tried to start multiple of these uh, therapies uh, in clinical practice? And have you had any problems with that? Santosh. I have enough trouble getting insurance to approve one, one therapy. Um, I have not tried uh, multiple therapies at this time. So we have, um, we're, we're in Connecticut, and uh, I, I don't know, we have a lot easier time, I think, getting drugs approved, particularly uh, for our patients on Medicaid, a little bit harder for our private payers. Um, but we've had the opportunity to have several patients on combination therapy, um, very few patients on combination HU, L-glutamine, Cris, and Vox, maybe one patient that's on all four, but several patients that we've started both Voxelator and Crizanlizumab on. What we usually try to do in that circumstance is to identify with the patient what is, what is most concerning to them. And, and this is a perfect case, a patient with both a symptomatic anemia and frequent VOCs. And even though he's managing them at home, he's experiencing them. So because we like to start one new agent at a time, just to make sure we're able to readily identify which new agent a potential side effect could be coming from, we talk to the patient. And the patient in this circumstance says that the anemia is sort of what's causing me the most um, uh, impact on my quality of life. We would start Voxelator first. If the patient says, well, it's really the frequency of the VOCs, we would start crizolizumab first. And if we don't see the clinical improvement that the patient is looking for, then we might add the additional agents. That's our approach. Makes sense. I think that's the real world approach. And, and I'm a pediatrician, so I, the indications with the ages for these, I have not yet started both, but 
uh, curiously, or not curiously at all, the, the prior authorization form for our state Medicaid has, is the same form. So I think if you tick both boxes, I bet an alarm goes off somewhere. <laughs> so we'll move on now, uh, to Dr. Seraf. Thanks. Um, so uh, my name is Santosh Seraf. I'm an adult hematologist at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and I care for uh, primarily adults with sickle cell disease. Um, so it is an exciting time to care for people with sickle cell disease. There are a lot of uh, new therapies that we have available, um, but there are also a lot of uh, new therapies that are available through the pipeline uh, that are on the horizon, um, and we'll focus on PK activators and gene therapy. So sickle cell uh, red blood cells have high levels of 2,3-DPG. This is a molecule that promotes the deoxyhemoglobin uh, from being present in the red cells, and this in turn leads to more hemoglobin S polymerization and sickling. Sickle red blood cells also have low levels of ATP, and this is a very important um, uh, component of red blood cell health that helps maintain uh, red blood, blood cell membrane uh, flexibility, as well as um, helping repair damage to the cell membrane. So atavopivat, or atavo, is a PK activator that um, tries to help promote glycolysis to increase ATP and decrease 2,3-DPG. And this, uh, this figure here that gives us some flashbacks from biochemistry um, shows us that with PKR activation, you do help push the glucose down to generate ATP and decrease 2,3-DPG. And based on this mechanism, the hypothesis is that with a pyruvate kinase activator, you could decrease 2,3-DPG, leading to less hemoglobin S polymerization and sickling, and increase ATP, leading to better red blood cell membrane health, translating to an improved hemoglobin concentration and potentially less basal occlusive crises. So TAVO has been studied in a phase one study, first um, in healthy volunteers, followed by uh, in people with sickle cell disease, a multiple ascending dose, and then an open label 12-week dose at 400 milligrams per day. And the preclinical work has shown that TAVO does uh, seem to improve red blood cell health. Here on the left, um, Dr. Heaney really nicely showed the oxygen affinity curves. And here, this, this shows um, the oxygen affinity curve at baseline, it shifts to the left with the TAVO therapy, showing that the oxygen, the oxygen state is more um, common, and then shifts back to its baseline um, at the end of study. Um, also showing uh, improved health in the red cells is the elongation index. This is a measure of flexibility and, and can help uh, improve red blood cell flow. And with different oxygen concentrations and different osmolality concentrations, um, the ATAVO has been shown to improve the elongation index. And what's interesting is that even at the end of study, two weeks after the washout period, the elongation index still remains improved in the treated red blood cells. So there are two um, updates uh, that are going to be present presented at ASH this year, uh, both Saturday morning, one on the um, effects of ATAVO on uh, anemia and hemolysis, and then another one looking at biomarkers of inflammation and hypercoagulability. Uh, both being presented uh, tomorrow in the morning session. So there's also um, preclinical work showing that ATAVO um, improves uh, met metabolic health, adhesion, and survival. And here on the left, if you look at the PKR activity as a proof of concept, the people that were treated with ATAVO had elevated PK, PK activity. Uh, they also had enhanced um, antioxidant um, activity um, as seen here with higher superoxide dismutase and glutathione reductase activity. And then for red blood cell health, the phosphatidyl serine on the outside of the cell membrane is pathologic. And so with ATAVO, 
the patients had less phosphatidylserine exposure um, at, uh, after 12 weeks of treatment. Etavo was generally well tolerated uh, with low rates of um, adverse events. There was one patient who developed a uh, vaso-occlusive crisis during an upper respiratory tract infection, and this progressed to an acute chest syndrome. Um, this occurred um, after uh, the end of st uh, the, the study. This, was, this patient was uh, in an observation phase at that point. There was one other patient that developed deep vein thrombosis on day 14. Etavo showed an improvement in hemoglobin concentration, and here on the left, the maximum hemoglobin increase was 1.5 grams, uh, with seven out of eight patients showing a greater than one gram improvement. This improvement happened around week two, and it was uh, consistent um, during the 12-week uh, period. Also consistent with improved red cell health, markers of hemolysis improved with Etavo. This was seen by week two and remained relatively stable during the 12-week period. So this encouraging data has led to the Hibiscus study, or the phase two, three randomized double-blind global study uh, to investigate Atavopivat in people with sickle cell disease. Recruitment is ongoing. The planned enrollment is 344 patients, and there's two phases to the study. There's a dose determination phase, where there's going to be placebo, 200 milligrams or 400 milligrams, um, followed by an efficacy continuation group. The eligibility are people that have two or more crises per year, or have a and have a hemoglobin between five and a half and ten, and the assessment. There are two primary endpoints to the study. They're going to be assessed at the um, end of 24 weeks for the improvement in hemoglobin, and then at 52 weeks for the improvement in base-occlusive crises. And this will be followed by an open-label uh, extension study. Another PK activator that's uh, shown a lot of promise is metapivit. Um, I'm hoping I'm saying that right. <laughs> Um, so this has a very similar mechanism of action. It activates pyruvate kinase R, and so this leads to reduced 2,3-DPG and increased ATP generation. So this promotes the oxyhemoglobin uh, in the red cell, as well as promoting ATP to help improve red blood cell membrane uh, health. Um, there has been encouraging data looking at metapivit uh, in pyruvate kinase deficiency. And here was a, a phase three study looking at um, the use of this in pyruvate kinase deficiency showing uh, a reduction in transfusion burden, uh, an improvement in transfusion-free periods, as well as less annualized red blood cell units uh, transfused. And so based on this encouraging data, this has also been uh, investigated in people with sickle cell disease. Uh, here's the National Clinical Trials number, um, and um, the endpoint is looking at the safety, tolerability, pharmacokinetics, and pharmacodynamics of metavopivat in people with sickle cell disease. And here's the study design. So they're looking at people that are age 18 or older with stable sickle cell disease, hemoglobin greater than 7, uh, and, and stable uh, disease modification with transfusions, hydroxyurea, or glutamine. There's a screening phase. There are two dose escalation um, uh, phases. One is 5 to 50 milligrams, and the other is 5 to 100 milligrams. Treatment is for eight weeks, followed by a taper, and then a follow-up period. And the primary endpoints are safety, tolerability, change in hemoglobin and hemolytic markers. And the secondary endpoints are the, uh, the PK in the red cell, 2,3-DPG ATP, oxygen dissociation, and the sickling tendency. Here were some of the results that were presented by Dr. Xu at ASH last year. Um, and very similar to what was seen with the TAVO, uh, there was uh, an improvement in the hemoglobin concentration. The mean uh, improvement was 1.3 grams. 
The majority of patients had an improvement in hemoglobin by greater than one gram, 55%. And in those that were super responders, those that had more than a one gram response, um, those people had uh, up to a, a mean of two grams, of 1.9 grams uh, improvement. Metavo showed uh, a linear PK improvement up to the dose of 50 milligrams BID. Um, after 100 milligrams BID, there did seem to be induction of the cytochrome uh, CYP3A enzyme, and so there may be some auto-induction and uh, increased metabolism. Um, there was dose-dependent decreases in 2,3-DPG and increases in ATP with metavapivet, and there were consistent decreases in hemolytic markers uh, during the, um, the treatment period. Metapivit was relatively well tolerated. Um, there were uh, low rates of adverse events. There were three vaso-occlusive crises that were observed. Um, none happened during the dose escalation phase. Two happened during the 28-day uh, safety follow-up period post-drug exposure, and one happened during drug taper. And there's going to be um, updated uh, results on this uh, phase one study um, presented uh, tomorrow morning by Dr. Xu. So based on the encouraging results from Metapivit, um, there are also uh, two large uh, phase two, phase three type studies that are uh, ongoing uh, currently. The first is a phase two, three double-blind randomized placebo-controlled study um, that's going to evaluate Metapivit. And this is uh, led by Dr. Howard, and uh, there's an abstract presentation on this on Monday. And then there's another phase two open-label study that's being conducted in people age 16 or greater, and this will be presented by um, Dr. Dietz. Uh, on um, Sunday. So the other um, exciting therapy that's on the horizon is gene therapy. Um, so allogeneic transplantation, the, limit, the challenges are that not everybody has an HLA-matched donor, probably less than 20%. Um, and then there's the risk of graft-versus-host disease, especially when you're using alternative donors. In gene therapy, you're using your own autologous stem cells. They're modified and reintroduced back into the patient. So this is potentially curative, does not require a donor, um, and there are a couple of different approaches uh, to, to accomplish this. One is gene addition by adding an anti-signaling beta-globin gene. The other is gene editing where you inhibit the function of BCL11A. This is an important protein um, that represses gamma globin uh, gene expression. And so if you decrease the function of BCL11A, there's increased gamma globin gene expression and increased hemoglobin F. There are some safety concerns um, associated with gene therapy. Currently, the regimens are myeloablative using busulfan, so you have to worry about the toxicity of the conditioning regimen. Um, there have also been some cases of MDS and AML that are presented um, after uh, the gene therapy. Uh, this could be due to either the um, conditioning regimen toxicity, it could be due to insertional mutagenesis, or it could be people with sickle cell disease may have some kind of clonal hematopoiesis that emerges after the, um, after the conditioning regimen. Here is data from the uh, gene addition of hemoglobin A. And here you can see that the hemoglobin A improvement um, happens uh, relatively early and remains stable. And in, in essence, this patient gets turned into somebody with sickle cell trait. There is going to be an update on uh, data from this uh, approach uh, by Dr. Walters to, on um, Saturday morning as well. It's going to be a very good session, I guess. Um, so there's gonna, they're going to be looking at the sustained improvements with this therapy um, and looking at patient-reported quality of life up to 24 months post-treatment. The other approach is targeting BCL11A, and there are two mechanisms to do this. One is the CRISPR-Cas9 system, and the other is lentivirus. 
They both use a myeloblative approach using uh, PK-adjusted busulfan. They use Plurxor 4 mobilized uh, CD34 cells and have adequate stem cell doses. Um, the follow-up is 15 months with CRISPR-Cas9 that was published and 7 to 29 months with pelantiglobin. And as expected with a myeloblative regimen, there is some risk of infection during the neutropenic and um, leukopenic periods uh, with sepsis, uh, influenza, as well as some sickle cell-related complications in the um, short-term period. Uh, but the long-term um, results are very remarkable. Um, they've shown improvements in hemoglobin concentrations in both groups, as well as elimination of vaso-occlusive crises. And here are some of the uh, individual data. This is the CRISPR-Cas9 system. Um, and if you look at the light blue here, you can see that the hemoglobin F percentage uh, increases and remains stable at long-term follow-up. And the hemoglobin concentration also shows a very nice improvement. What I think is really remarkable here is the figure on the, on the right um, showing that these orange dots represent basal-occlusive crises. And you see a multitude of them on the left-hand side. But after the infusion, uh, the patient is basal-occlusive uh, crisis-free as well as transfusion-independent with these uh, darker blue dots here on the left. <clears throat> the other approach is lentivirus. Um, and so this also targets BCL11A to augment hemoglobin F. Uh, and in the New England paper, they showed uh, long-term hemoglobin F, um, or relatively long-term hemoglobin F results, uh, with hemoglobin F ranging between 20% and 40% on last follow-up. Um, these patients have also shown uh, improvements in some of the sickle cell disease-related complications. I mean, looking at the patients that had very frequent basal-occlusive crises here, you can see that only one of those three patients had one crisis. Uh, it was defined as a crisis requiring an ER visit, while the rest of the patients had no crises. Uh, so again, showing uh, some remarkable clinical benefits. So with that, um, I, that's the overview of kind of the, the new therapies on the horizon. And we'll go to um, a clinical case and panel discussion. So this is case uh, number three. It's a 19-year-old girl named Kim with hemoglobin SS genotype. Um, she uh, lives with her parents and is doing her bachelor's in chemistry from a nearby university. She has an active lifestyle but complains of fatigue. She has two siblings that are HLA-typed. Uh, she visits her hematologist frequently and manages VOCs at home or at the emergency room based on the severity of each episode. She had four VOCs in the last year, with three to four in the last two years. One was managed at home, three in the emergency room. She was on hydroxyurea, crizanlizumab, and L-glutamine in the past with suboptimal improvement. Uh, here are her exam findings. Her vitals are normal. Physical exam is relatively normal. Uh, she's anemic with a hemoglobin of 7.5. LDH of 410, uh, total and indirect bilirubin of 3.8 and 2.8, and she has mildly elevated albuminuria. So Kim is interested in emerging therapies and wants to learn about clinical trials. So assuming all trials are enrolling and available for Kim, which emerging therapy would be ideal for her clinical picture? And so I'll start uh, to my right, Dr. Heaney. <laughs> what would you think about it for this patient? Well, I think she had two... Uh two siblings who are HLA type, but I don't know whether they actually told us uh, whether or not they were matches. Did you tell us? I'm sorry. But if they were a match, I think you'd certainly have to enter a sort of shared decision-making model with them about what, uh, you know, HLA sibling identical match would be probably the standard of care at this point in, in a clinical setting. Um, but aside from that, if they're assuming that they were not uh, HLA identical, um, then we'd be looking at clinical trials of either of these uh, gene addition, gene editing, or now base editing approaches um, that may be available. 
Um, this is a challenge. I think centers that are gene therapy centers and transplant centers are going to have a hard time, um, uh, challenging time, educating patients as to the subtle differences between all of these gene therapeutic approaches. Um, obviously, the most mature data is with the gene addition approach of lentiglobin, um, which may provide uh, patients with some uh, sense of security about that approach. Um, and, uh, but I imagine there'll be emerging data from these other groups uh, fairly quickly, uh, and hopefully seeing that uh, all of them have a relatively similar uh, benefit to, with respect to VOC that's been seen at least early on by these first two approaches. Um, I think to some extent it'll what's available nearby for them uh, and uh, what they're willing to do or able to do in terms of travel to centers where these will be approached, where these approaches are being offered uh, on a research basis. But uh, again, trying to educate the families as best we can about the different approaches and what uh, distinguishes them from each other and the potential or at least theoretical risks as we learn about uh, more about these. Dr. Anne Mary? Yeah, so I, I do have conversations with patients about this a lot. My patients tend to be a little bit older, and I think that adds additional challenges. So say this patient was 43, um, there would be concerns about first of all, finding a transplanter on the adult side that was comfortable and had experience transplanting individuals with sickle cell disease. It's much harder than on the pediatric side, in my experience. Um, uh, the other issue is a lot of times, although we don't see that necessarily here in the key findings, that a lot of these patients have chronic organ damage as they get older, which also can make it harder for them to be uh, perceived as eligible for uh, HLS, HLA transplantation. Also, um, a lot of the gene therapy trials have upper age limits uh, that are below uh, a lot of uh, my patients. So a lot of my patients in their 40s, for example, although it, maybe some of the trials have increased their upper limit of age, but for most of my patients, the gene therapy has not been a potential option uh, for a clinical trial because they were above the upper age limit. Um, Getting beyond that, and again, focusing on sort of the patient voice, there are a lot of individuals with sickle cell disease, uh, adults, who are concerned that if gene therapy does become approved, um, and, is and the clinical trials are only performed, say, in age under 30, that the approvals will only be in individuals under a certain age. So there's a concern amongst the patient sickle cell community that even though gene therapy sounds promising, that they may not actually be eligible because it may not be approved uh, beyond a certain age. Um, did you want to add anything else? No, I think uh, you covered pretty much all the bases, and I think the point here is clearly she is a candidate for one of the curative approaches. And as Matt pointed out, if one of the siblings is a HLA match, that would be the easiest, and if not, uh, maybe a gene therapy. The important point here being, like you mentioned, she is relatively young, and therefore I think either one of these very rigorous uh, curative approaches, she would tolerate better than some of our older patients. Thank you. Thank you. So detailed discussion was held with Kim to inform about clinical trials on novel emerging therapies in sickle cell disease. A shared decision-making approach was utilized, and Kim was informed about available clinical trials. A follow-up visit was scheduled in two weeks to discuss available trials and enrollment criteria. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much.
So uh, first of all, I want to thank my colleagues uh, for being up here and for all of you in the audience, both in person and at home, uh, for uh, participating today. Um, we just wanted to uh, let you know uh, that there are many, many, many uh, abstracts being presented here at ASH focusing on sickle cell disease, and we list them uh, based on uh, the, the drug and target here. Um, so you'll see them listed on this page. Uh, as well as here, and whether they're oral poster and the author. Um, so we do have a little bit of time for some of the questions that came from the audience. And so I, I do have them here, and I'm going to ask my colleagues. Um, so is hydroxyurea teratogenic? And if a woman wants to get pregnant, uh, should she stop hydroxyurea before trying to conceive, or is it okay just to stay on hydroxyurea before and during pregnancy? So, do you want to do you want to take that? Uh, yeah, I, I think over the years, in the context of many hydroxyurea trials, this has been an issue. Uh, and now the good news part is none of these trials have really shown any significant birth defects even in patients who conceived while on hydroxyurea. And mechanistically, I think hydroxyurea's most deleterious effects would be during the organogenesis period, which is up to six weeks. Uh, so considering all of that, there is now a tendency to consider hydroxyurea in later phases of pregnancy after organogenesis is complete. And we've, we've had to do it in one patient, particularly because she used to be on hydroxyurea, she got pregnant, almost discontinued, but she had very frequent pain episodes, ED visits, and uh, I think it was during her third trimester that we initiated hydroxyurea, yeah. and the outcome was good. Yeah, and there's also the helpful study, which is registered with clinicaltrials.gov, uh, PI, Russell Ware, it's multi-center, um, that's looking uh, retrospectively, it's a chart review on women who have been exposed to hydroxyurea either during pregnancy or during lactation. So hopefully that will uh, enroll uh, in large enough numbers so that we can take a deep dive there as well. Thank you. There's a question about... Um, the use of Voxtelator in individuals with higher hemoglobins, like above 10. Does anybody have any experience? What, what did the data show us about using uh, Voxtelator in patients with higher hemoglobins? I think there's a theoretical concern about viscosity uh, approaching a certain uh, high hemoglobin that potentially the uh, benefit of oxygen delivery may go down as it does we see in even um, unmodified or normal hemoglobin in patients uh, over a certain hemoglobin. So I think there's that theoretical concern. I think that the sponsor has tried to um, alleviate those by showing that those with the highest responses have not had any increased vaso-occlusive uh, um, complications, but I think still it's a concern for some. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Another question here about crizolizumab. Um, how long do you keep patients on it? Should they have a drug holiday? When do you do that? Has anybody tried home infusions? Any thoughts on crizolizumab duration and drug holidays? <laughs> We've kept our patients on it indefinitely and, and tried to work around the holidays. Um, we're currently uh, equipped to do it as uh, in our infusion center, but not as an outpatient. I mean, it is an interesting question because I think that if you could do it at home, it would be a great way to help improve um, the, the compliance and the ability for the patient to go on it. 
Um, I think that there's just some hurdles because it's still considered a, um, an antibody that requires uh, an advanced level of kind of um, skills to administer it, and then you have to monitor for infusion-related reactions. Yeah. I think from my perspective, uh, based off the clinical trials for crizolizumab, it's an, an expensive drug, and if it's not going to be efficacious, I'd like to, to stop it, but I would probably give them at least a year's worth and then try to do my own little evaluation of pre- and post-frequency um, of vaso-occlusive crisis, and then also um, ask the patient if they felt any different. And I think the same for me with Loxelator, that um, you know, that we see a really rapid increase in the clinical trial, and if you're not getting an increase after, I would have thought, three to six months and any significant increase in hemoglobin uh, maybe in that population who's not going to get a, a result. So I'd probably reassess them at that, those time points and see whether it would be worthwhile uh, considering something else. And we will end with a thought-provoking question here. So considering all the burdens of pills and infusions on patients, the costs, as you alluded to, when would you just consider gene therapy up front? Say we're in the post-approval you know, time period. Would you consider gene ther therapy sort of upfront? Well, I think it all depends on the safety and efficacy, right? So um, I think that that would be a uh, move towards curative options if they are widely available, safe and effective, and, uh, and, and available both financially and otherwise. And I think that there would be some push towards that, but uh, there's still a lot to be learned there. Yeah. I think the short answer is not yet. <laughs> we probably have to wait the results of ongoing trials, and there are several different approaches which Santosh outlined very mm -hmm. nicely, uh, several years probably before we are there. So I'll say we'll be discussing that at ASH 2050. What do you say? <laughs> 2050. 2050. What do you think? Oh, 2050, you said? Mm -hmm. Sounds realistic, Bree. I, I, I don't know. I, I think there's going to be a, a, a very long-term uh, uh, availability and, and need for disease-modifying therapies before curative therapies are truly widely available, in, even in resource-rich countries, let alone resource-challenged countries. So you can say, when we have reduced carbon emissions to zero, <laughs> and when all the cars on the street are e-vehicles, Maybe gene therapy would be offered first. Line. Okay, well, <laughs> thank you. And I think we'll end on that note. Thank you so much, Dr. <laughs> Kudlar. Thank you, Dr. Heaney and Dr. Saraf. And thank you to the audience. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education, and the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America Incorporated. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash CMX860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from Agios Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Forma Therapeutics, and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.